Well, good morning. It's good to see y'all. Hey, we are in the eighth week of our sermon series, Entrusted, in which we've been covering just a, a few of the essential truths of the Christian faith, kind of as a response to a national poll that's taken every two years called the State of Theology Survey. The point of the survey is to track theological trends within our nation, to track really theological drift within our nation. The sponsors of the survey want to see just how orthodox the American church is today compared to, say, two years ago or ten years ago or a generation ago. And so they asked 35 questions of substance to check the theological pulse of the American church today. And the one thing, if you've been following the sermon series and the stats we've been going over, the one thing that is very clear from the responses so far is that not everyone who checks the box Christian is Christian. I mean, that's just so clear, right? When you read the survey, when you read the question, you realize, hey, if if half the people who say they are a Christian are saying they don't believe in the deity of Christ, the authority of Scripture, the Holy Trinity, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, not everyone who checks that box Christian is actually Christian. And this is not new, it's not novel, it's not a, a Bobby idea. This comes straight from the New Testament. The New Testament speaks frequently about it. And in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addressed this head on when He said, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. Meaning that you can have the language of faith you can talk like a Christian and not be a Christian. On that day, many will come to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Or cast out demons in your name? Or do many mighty works in your name? Like you could have all the activity of faith and still not have the faith. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not like they had something, they had the faith and lost it. According to Jesus, they were never His. They never had the faith at all. They just had the language of faith. They had the activity of faith, but they were not Christian. Like not everyone who checks Christian on the form is a Christian. Like growing up, I always considered myself a Christian. I mean, what were the alternatives? Of course I was a Christian. Even before I was a Christian, I was a Christian, right? Like I would have checked Christian on the box. But understand, church, that the term Christian actually means something. Like it has a definition. And we are required to meet that definition if we are in fact that thing. Like Vincent of Lorenz wrote 1,600 years ago, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. Like that's what this sermon series has been about. We're not trying to turn you into a non-denominational Christian. Like we want you to embrace the historic, biblical, 
orthodox faith that the church has held to for 2,000 years. Like to say I am a Christian is a statement of fact, not merely feelings. It's a statement of objective reality, not only my subjective experience. If I say that I am a Christian, it means that I believe the content of the historic biblical orthodox faith. Like what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And that I have personally placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I am following Him as my Lord. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so not everyone who checks that box is one. And even when I say that, when I say not everyone who checks Christian in the box is actually a Christian, that is not some sort of elitist assertion. Like I'm not saying that we at Hutto Bible Church are the ones who have it all together. Right? That we're the really good people. Like God looked from eternity past until today and He saw the ones that were the shiniest and they just happened to go to our church and He chose them. Like that's, that's not how it works. Like we are not the best of the best. We are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. That's who we are. That's our identity. As the Apostle Paul asserted, what do you have that you have not been given? We didn't earn this. We didn't deserve this. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by His grace and mercy, He saved us. And so it's not because we have it all together. And it's not, you know, when I say not all Christians are truly Christian, it doesn't mean that we have everything figured out theologically. We certainly don't. don't. We, we still have questions and there's still things that we're figuring out this side of heaven. We won't have all those answers. I am sure, I'm confident that one day when I get to heaven, I'll have to sit through a few seminars. And I'm okay with that because I love seminars. And I love learning. Okay, We don't have it all together. We don't have all the answers. However, God in His great mercy and as a response to my great cluelessness, has made the plain things the main things, and the main things the plain things. Like theologically, like the theologically, the main things are the plain things. God has made them so clear in Scripture that we can't miss it. You can read the Bible for yourself and come up with the same answer about the nature of God the nature of Christ, the way of salvation, the authority of the Bible, the personhood of Christ, and what God calls us to do morally, to be holy as He is holy. Like we would get that just from reading the Bible because the main things are the plain things. God has clearly revealed the non-negotiable doctrines of the faith, the ones that are central, the ones that are indispensable, the doctrines that truly make us Christians, the one I've been speaking about for these past eight weeks, the ones we usually refer to as closed-handed issues. Like these are the doctrines that make us Christian and that we cannot bend on. Now there are other doctrines that we can have fun discussions about, we can disagree with, 
on these issues, and it's okay. I mean, we can talk about both of these, but you will not pry my hand open on these. Like, these are absolutely essential because without them, I am not and you are not truly Christian. And so with that kind of lengthy introduction, lengthy reorientation, uh, we're going to start this morning's message. It was necessary because today we are turning our attention to the doctrine of sanctification, like the living out of the faith once and for all entrusted for the saints. And I have found in my experience that this is the dividing line. Because we can talk about Jesus, His deity, His salvation, what the cross accomplished, all of that stuff. We love that, but don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what's right and wrong, what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to believe about moral issues, like who I can sleep with, what I do with my money, who do I vote for, those kind of things. That's way over here. Don't, Don't bring that up, but let's just talk about Jesus. But see, the doctrine of sanctification means that everything else we have been studying for the past eight weeks actually means something right here and right now. Like this has not been some sort of, I don't know, intellectual exercise or thought experiment. Theology matters. It matters in how I live every single moment of my life. It is, in fact, the most significant part of me and the part that commands the rest of my life. What I believe about the nature of God. The authority of Scripture. Like the problem of sin, the person and work of Christ. It directs how I live, who I love, where I stand on issues that are dividing our world, how I vote and where I place my hope. In Colossians chapter 2, you can turn there, Colossians chapter 2, Paul begins to talk about this issue of sanctified living. Like what is the Christian life and how, you, how do you live it? And in fact, he, he shares in Colossians 2 in a very simple way what the secret of the Christian life is, how you live, how you walk as a Christian right here and right now when he says in verse 6, so then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. And so if you were to ask Paul, okay, so how do I live the Christian life? Like, I understand how I placed my faith in Jesus and where it all started, but now what? Like, now, like, what do I do until I'm dead or until Jesus comes for me? How do you live this life? I think Paul would say, well, how did you start this life? I mean, how did you begin the Christian life? You confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you believed in your heart that God had raised Him from the dead. And as a result, you were saved. Like you turned from your sins and you turned to Jesus. You placed your faith in Christ. You surrendered your life to Christ. So how do you live the Christian life? Well, just continue what you started. That stuff. Do that stuff. 
In fact, uh, writing on sanctification, theologian Wayne Grudem explains it like this. He says, repenting of our sins and trusting God for salvation sets the pattern for the rest of the Christian life. And so just look at the pattern. Look at how you came to faith in Christ. Repenting of your sins and trusting God for salvation sets the pattern for the rest of Christian life. Repentance and faith result in justification, but repentance and faith also aid what is sometimes called sanctification. Sanctification is the progressive work of both God and man that makes Christians more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in their actual lives. The Apostle Paul simply put it this way, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Here's the Christian life. The Christian life is a daily confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the Christian life. How do you live the Christian life? Daily confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't ever graduate from this. Like this should be your first breath in the morning. Before you speak to your husband or wife, you should just breathe out a prayer like, good morning, Jesus. You are Lord. Like I want to declare that today. You are Lord. It should be our moment by moment uh, continual declaration as we are impacted by the uh, both theological and moral claims of this present darkness in which we find ourselves living. Like the Christian life is a daily confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and the Christian life is a daily surrender to His will over your own. Once again, this is something we don't graduate from. Like, because there's a battle that still rages in our hearts, right? It, it's still raging in us. And so the Christian life is once again a moment by moment yielding to the will of God over our own will. Like, and, and the only person in all of the universe who deserves that level of allegiance is Jesus. And so daily, I'm confessing moment by moment, Confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and daily, moment by moment, I'm yielding to His will. And finally, the Christian life is daily trusting that what He says is best. You don't graduate from this. Like we yield on a moment by moment basis to the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives out of self-interest. We're not martyrs. We're not saying, hey, you know, Jesus, I know you're telling me to do this, but I know that, you know what, Satan has a better plan that is way more satisfying and ultimately beneficial, but I'm, because I'm loyal to you, I'm going to choose this. No. Like, we know that Satan is a liar. Like, he is a cockroach who one day will find himself under the boot of Jesus. But Jesus has a path for us that always leads to life and blessing. 
His way is best. And so we yield to it because we know that He knows more than we know. Like every moment, every decision, we think, you know what? Jesus, if I chose my own way on this, it would end so poorly. Like I know my track record. I'm a fool. And so I choose you. I choose you. I want you to know, before you tell me what to do, my answer to you is yes. So just show me. Just speak. And so the Christian life is is a daily confessing, a daily surrendering, a daily trusting of Christ. Like if you followed Jesus completely, like in every area of your life, would your life be better? If you had just been able to go back the last five years, 10 years, 30 years of your life and change every decision you made to the one that aligns with the will of God, would your life not be so much better? Of course it would. If your neighbor followed Christ, would their life not be better? If our nation, if our world followed the will of God, followed Christ in everything, would we not be in a better place today? Well, of course we would. Guys, that's the Christian life. Daily confessing, daily surrendering, daily trusting Him. And we cannot skip a single day because there is also daily opposition. Both within our own hearts and without from the enemy and from our culture. Paul goes on to say in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Guys, someone wants to take you captive to do their will. Someone wants to make to trap you, to snare you so they can steal and kill and destroy. We have a true spiritual enemy who wants to take us captive. The elemental spiritual forces of this present darkness, the spirit of the age. We also have a culture that is under Satan's dominion that wants to take us captive to its hollow and deceptive philosophy and here and here are some examples for example in the state of theology survey 33 percent of evangelical surveys said that gender identity was simply a matter of personal choice 33 percent with another seven percent were confused they didn't know one way or the other 20 percent uh, said that christians should be silent when it came to issues of politics, and another 7% just didn't understand if they should or not. 15% of these evangelicals surveys said that God was unconcerned with our daily, uh, day-to-day decisions. 25% of evangelicals surveyed said that homosexual practice is not a sin, it's okay. And another 10% uh, said that they didn't know one way or the other. 19% of evangelicals said that sex outside of traditional marriage was okay, and 19% of them said that abortion is not a sin. And then finally, 19% of those surveyed 
said that the Holy Spirit can tell me to do something that God has already forbidden in His Word. I mean, that's very discouraging. But here's what it means. It means that evangelicals have been discipled, but not by the church. They've been discipled by their culture. They've been discipled by the elemental spiritual forces of this world. It means that we have been catechized, but not by historic, biblical, orthodox faith that has been believed everywhere, always, and by all, but we instead have been catechized by the hollow and deceptive philosophy of this present darkness. I mean, on a personal level, I had a couple years ago a conversation with my daughter, Emma. And at the time, she was working as a barista and she told me that one of her co-workers, she described her as a Christian. She's a Christian, but she's a progressive Christian. To which I responded, <laughs> you know, as her dad slash theologian, I said, okay, Emma, I just want you to understand some terms here. I want you to get your categories right. There are not two Christianities. One that's orthodox and one that's progressive. There is only one faith once for all entrusted to the saints. Your friend who is progressive, hey, that's fine. We have a progressive party in politics. There are people who like that term. I mean, it's really good marketing because what's the opposite? Regressive? I mean, so it's really good. It's, it has the air of superiority about it, but there is no superior group of Christians that have figured something out that we have not in 2,000 years. There are not two Christianities. There is the faith that is held beyond denominations by Christians all over the world for 20 centuries. And then there are counterfeits and cults. And that's what this is. It's not Christianity. You can't be Christian and deny the deity of Christ. You can't be Christian and not believe in the authority of Scripture or the fact that there is one God eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You cannot be Christians and say that the moral commands of God are not for me. I can do whatever the heck I want to do. I don't have to submit to the Lordship of Christ. That's something, but it ain't Christian. And thus ended my sermon to my daughter. I think she got it. <laughs> and so, just as application, like what should we do understanding how jacked up the world is and how much we have been discipled by our culture instead of by the Bible, like how should we then live? Well, guys, we need to contend for, we need to fight for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the way we do that, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 that the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. So this isn't a sermon that ends with go buy an AK, you know, and go to a gun range. If you want to do that, that's fine. I may go with you, but that's not the point of this message. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. No, they're greater than that. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish 
strongholds. How? We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I, I love how Paul describes every other belief, every other philosophy, every other idea or ideal outside of what is revealed in Scripture. He says it's pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What are we to do? Take captive every thought. Like, how do you take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ? Well, this is what you do. It means that you take every, every idea, every, every thought, every inclination of your heart, like every preference that you have, every decision that you need to make, every assertion of our culture, of the elites who run everything, or the so-called experts, and you place them willingly and lovingly under the authority of Christ. Like you say, God, I mean, this is a big issue. Everybody's dividing over it. It's really emotional. I don't know what to think about it. I just want to know what you say. And whatever you say is the truth. And I yield to it. That's what it means to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. God, I have ideas and I have thoughts or certain things that I would prefer and I have strong opinions, but I place all of my opinions, all of my thoughts, all of my ideas lovingly and willingly under the Lordship of Christ. And I want to do what You say. It means to confess Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. Jesus Christ is Lord over every issue we ever face, to which some might push back and say, but Pastor Bobby, issues like sexuality or gender expression or marriage equality or abortion or whatever, I mean, these are very, very complex issues. And they don't have a one-size-fits-all solution to which I would counter Jesus Christ is Lord over everything. That's my solution to those, which may sound simple, but it's far from being simple. You know, some people would say, well, you know, these issues are so crazy, they're so complex, there's nuance that you really need to understand to which I would want to respond, be careful, Christian that you don't trip over your nuance or your complexity on the way before you bow before the King of kings and Lord of lords to whom the whole earth will give an account. Jesus Christ is Lord. And some may say, but you know, shouldn't the church focus its attention on the Gospel instead of culture wars? We don't want to get wrapped up in culture wars. They're so divisive. They're so ugly. Like We should just stick with the Gospel. To which I would respond, are we supposed to place limits then on the Lordship of Christ? Because I, I thought that he would, he would be the one reigning until His Father has placed all His enemies under His feet. I mean, that's what the Bible says. Like So we're supposed to limit that? The one who it says of him that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he will reign 
forever and ever. There are no limitations to the Lordship of Christ. Like, don't you believe that the way of Christ is better than the alternative? Then why would you want anything else for yourself or your neighbor? Aren't you supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? Why would you want your neighbor enslaved to the things that the enemy wants them enslaved to? Like, don't you believe that repentance from sin is necessary for salvation? As Christ taught, as the apostles taught? Like, don't you believe that the law of God is a tutor that leads us to Christ? Like it was for me, I read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching from the law, and it just cut me to my core when I realized that though I had not done these outward sins, like my heart was adulterous and murderous, and I needed a Savior. Like don't you think, or do you think that Peter or Paul or John the Baptist or even Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like do you think that they were martyred for simply saying Jesus loves you one too many times? I mean, come on. I mean, they were martyred because they said and confessed and lived it out that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. To which some people might push back and take it a different, a new way and say, but like we don't want people to think that we're a bunch of weirdo like Christian nationalists or something. Like, and so pump the brakes. And when I hear that term Christian nationalism, first of all, like most of like the screen time that I have in life is spent watching uh, old episodes of The Office or Parks and Rec, so I had to catch up on some terminology. But my thought is, hey, people are going to think what they're going to think based on the limits that they place on the Lordship of Christ. I don't place any limits on the Lordship of Christ, but they're going to use whatever term they can to try to make me limit the Lordship of Christ just like they have. They want me to, they want us to privatize our faith and keep it safely within the walls of the sanctuary. But we're not supposed to do that. Paul didn't do that. Peter didn't do that. Like in the last few years, Christians have Christians who have like the audacity to actually believe the Bible and actually believe in Jesus and treasure Him and believe that they should order their lives after what He has said and that our culture would be better if it did the same. And if everyone did that, have been called all kinds of names. We've been called the Christian right. You know, which kind of sounds good. We're Christian and we're right. Okay, I'll take that one. <laughs> We've been called fundamentalists. We've even been accused of being a Christian Taliban as if we're going to round everybody up who disagrees with us and kill them or something like that. But the latest term that we're being accused of is Christian nationalist. And the the goal of all of this name calling is the same. They want us to retreat into our Christian ghettos and stay out of the public square. They don't want the salt and light that we bring. They don't want us to remind them that we live in a nation and are part of a culture, the West, that was founded on what the Bible says. Like They don't want that, and so they revert to name-calling. So when I hear the concern that, especially 
voiced by Christians, we don't want people to think that we're Christian nationalists. I think, I don't even know what that means. I mean, it, it sounds funny if it wasn't so insidious. Like, I, guys, I honestly, I'm just trying to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I'm just trying to hold to that which has believed, been believed by everyone always and everywhere. Like, I'm not believing anything new or novel. Like, I, I shy away from the new and novel. That's the path of heresy. I don't want new and novel. Like, I have not shifted in my faith, but our culture has. Like, I'm just not a Christian who feels okay with switching Jesus off as I leave church. And so I'm called names. And I think it's important to have definitions of these terms that we're called because, like, if I hear that, you know, Bobby, you sound like a Christian nationalist, I'm like, oh no, those people are wacky. Like they have militias and they do all this kind of stuff. Isn't that what they are? And then I hear the definition come from the people who don't like the Christian nationalists and I'm like, oh wait, so a Christian nationalist is somebody who doesn't believe abortion should be legal and that marriage is between a man and a woman and should be a lifetime, lifetime commitment and that Jesus Christ is Lord over all? Oh, crap. Like I don't want to be one of those people and yet I hold to what I've always held to. And what the church for 2,000 years has held to, and now they have a new term to tag on to us. Aren't we supposed to take every thought captive, even this one, and make it obedient to Christ? Like when I hear the term Christian nationalist, I just think, what's the alternative? Pagan nationalist? Secular nationalist? Globalist? Tribalist? Or maybe it's this elusive myth of pluralism that our culture is always selling us. And it is a myth because pluralism is a term that is most often employed to get Christians to retreat from the public square even as the spirit of, its, of this age makes its advance. Like it's the spirit of the age asserting its values even as they criticize, condemn, trivialize, and try to erase ours. And so let me, let me counter with where I stand on all of this. I don't like all these terms that are thrown around. Here's what I am. I'm a Christian. I'm someone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord over every culture and every nation and every life, even the ones that don't acknowledge Him yet. As Abraham Kuyper has said so well, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, Mine. And so if all it takes for you to shrink back from your faith is to call you a name, then you need to examine your loyalties. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again. This really is our Christian kryptonite. Because we like being liked. Like we like being thought of as the good people, the moral people, the kind people, the loving people, the people who are compassionate. But understand, the spirit of this age has new definitions for all of those words. Chesterton wrote that a man who has faith must be prepared 
not only to be a, mar a martyr, but to be a fool. And so if it just if all it takes to get you to shrink back is calling you names, examine your loyalty. And if all it takes for you to shrink back in your faith is to tell you that the church has been toxic to culture for 2,000 years, you need to study some history. Because if it were not for the church of Jesus Christ, everywhere on the globe would be like the worst place on the globe. And the worst place on the globe is not where Christianity reigns. Like the church has lifted us out of barbarism, out of misogyny, out of slavery. That was the church that did that. In fact, the cultures that we live in that are most critical of the church are the ones that have that right because of the church. So how are we to answer these complex issues of our day? The ones that tend to be so divisive and so emotional? Simply by confessing on a daily basis like Jesus Christ is Lord. By daily surrendering our lives to Him. By daily trusting in Him. Understand, like God does not have to answer to me. I answer to Him. Like God is not required to answer all of my hypothetical questions. So how do I answer these questions? These complex issues that divide us, that have so much emotional weight, by declaring unwaveringly and unapologetically my loyalty and love for Jesus. I put it simply like this if somebody brings up a tough issue, I don't want to get in the weeds of that issue. Instead, I'll just tell them, you know what, that's hard. That's a hard issue. But can I just tell you, I know, like I know. That Jesus Christ, like literally, died for me. Like you're trying to pull me to your way of thinking, but Jesus stands on the other side and Jesus literally died for me. Like he looked from eternity past into the present and he saw me and he saw all the sins and all the pretension and all the just arrogance. And He took that upon Himself. And He was tortured to death. And He was separated from the loving presence of His Father. He experienced hell for me. What have you ever done for me? Like Jesus literally died for my sins. And so I side with Him. I yield to Him. I surrender to Him. I confess that He is Lord because this is a Lordship issue. And though I may not understand some of the complexities, I know that God knows more than I know. And so that's where I start. And so I'm going to do something. I'm going to ask you just briefly to close your eyes. And I'm going to read something to you from Paul Tripp because this is the story of your life right here. Think of the holy ground you live on every day. Before the foundations of the earth were laid in place, God claimed you as His own. He wrote the history of the world so that at the right moment, the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus took on your humanity, subjected Himself to the hardships of this fallen world, lived a perfect life, 
died an acceptable death and rose again, conquering sin and death. Jesus did all of that with you in mind. He wrote every period of time, place, location, situation, and relationship into your story so that you would hear the Gospel of His grace. He worked conviction into your heart, gave you ears to hear the truth, and gifted you with the ability to believe. He gave you His Word and moved inside of you by His Spirit. He poured down the blessings of His promise on you and will never leave you. He rules your life with the continued salvation in mind, using everything at His sovereign disposal to move along the work of His transforming mercies. There is never a moment when you aren't the object of redeeming love and sanctifying grace. The gargantuan, sovereignly directed plan of redemption has placed you on the ground on which you now stand. From eternity past to eternity future, your life has been claimed as holy ground. How can you consider this without falling to your knees at all? In gratitude and in worship. How can you not keep the eyes of your heart constantly open to the operation of God's sanctifying grace? And how can your living not be shaped by understanding that every aspect of your life is made sacred by sanctifying grace? You can open your eyes. Church, that's what any of the shredders in here read about in January. From Genesis to Revelation, we read the story of our personal rescue. How can we read that story and not be changed? How can we read that story and not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and yield our lives to His will? And trust Him with the outcome. And so with that firmly in mind, what about the issue of abortion? What about sexuality and sexual expression? What about the complexities of gender? What about the politics of our current day and the idea of Christian nationalism? What about marriage equality? What's the answer to all of those questions? Jesus Christ is Lord. Like, I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm saying that loyalty trumps your discomfort. It comes down to who will command your loyalty. It's a, it's a who question before it's a how or a what question. All of your life is a test of your loyalty to Christ. Like, who loves the person that you're talking to who's struggling with whatever issue? Who loves that person more than Jesus? they don't even love themselves as much as Jesus loves them. Like who has a genuinely better plan for their life than Jesus? Like who is better positioned to help them than Jesus? So how do we answer these complex issues? By believing the Gospel over all of them. By preaching the Gospel over all of them. And by declaring the supremacy of Christ over all of them. Like we need to step out of our echo chambers 
of this present darkness. And we need to step into eternity. As pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, God has prepared for Himself one great song of praise throughout eternity. And those who enter the community of God join in this song. It is the song the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at the creation of the world. It is the victory song of the children of Israel after passing through the Red Sea. The Magnificent of Mary after the Annunciation. The song of Paul and Silas in the night of prison. The song of the singers on the sea of glass after their rescue. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. It is the song of the heavenly fellowship. And here's the song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Father, thank You that uh, the complex issues of our culture today come into perfect clarity when we simply recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord over those who willingly submit to Him. And He's Lord over those who do not and will not. Father, we confess and we know that there is coming a day where every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we don't want to wait for that day. We know that on that day, even Satan through gritted teeth will say that Jesus Christ is Lord, but we don't want to wait. We want to say it now. To the One who is worthy, who has set this table before us, this table of grace, where we commune with the body and blood of our Savior. And so we say it now, glorious, magnificent, beautiful Jesus, You are Lord. And it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.